This is Carlos Gonzalez, SBC, and you're listening to the Cinematography Podcast. The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft, and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hey, Ilya, how's it going? It is going uh, pretty darn well. How about you? Yeah, I can't complain. Been uh, busy. One thing about the current circumstances, it's affording us uh, some opportunities to interview some some people in, on other continents even. So we have a couple of uh, interviews coming up pretty soon here that uh, probably we wouldn't have done had we required them to come into the office. No, that would have been uh, a lot harder to get them to, to, get, to, get them to fly in to, uh, to talk <laughs> with us. So now that you have a little bit of time at home, are you are you watching a lot of good stuff? Because uh, well, I'm catching I'm catching up. I mean, yes and no. I mean, obviously, uh, you know, swear jar. I got the baby. So uh, I probably only have, you know, at most maybe uh, three, three hours or less a day that I could watch any television. So uh, what about so the evening? The evening? That, that's pretty much it. Like when he goes to sleep, I'm probably good for about three hours before I go to sleep. If that. <laughs> All right, so I'm cutting into your viewing time right now doing the podcast. So, uh, a little so bit, ben, yeah, <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> well, where do you what are you rushing to go see tonight? I don't actually have anything uh, lined up to watch tonight, but last night, and I'll talk about this a little bit more as my short end. But last night, I uh, I got to watch the Beastie Boys story on Apple TV, and that was amazing. Uh, I I can't wait to see that. That that looks really really good. It's it's pretty awesome. So before we even go, who is our guest today? You're going to have to tell me. <laughs> Our guest is Carlos Gonzalez, who I have uh, many, many fine stories about Carlos. He was the DP on the first movie I ever worked on, uh, which was Raw Justice, a movie that was shot in New Orleans and Mobile, Alabama back in uh, 1993. And nice. I was still in college and I was the assistant makeup artist. Carlos was the DP and he has connections to some people that we know on the show. For instance, he and Mike Mickens used to work together. I think he is even referenced in the Mike Mickens uh, episode. Mike was his gaffer at one point and he sort of, I, I don't, I don't think he like got Mike into shooting, but I feel like uh, he, he talks a little bit about how he kind of queued Mike up to get a couple of, a couple of jobs. They both worked for Corman. Really Really interesting stuff. And uh, side note, and, we, and he and I talk about it a little bit too. We had the same film professor, though, at different colleges, him at the University of Miami and myself at Valencia Community College in Orlando, Florida. It is a very, very small world. You know, you, you throw a rock, turns out everyone that we know knows each other and uh, they kind of uh, know a few other people too. So it's yeah, like and, it is. And, and Carlos has been like he's directing now and he's shot uh, Grey's Anatomy. Like he's shot a lot of big TV shows like he's he's definitely a very established guy. And, and actually, I think he gives some very practical advice for how to light fast. So look for that in the interview. He talks about about his philosophy, if you will, about how to how to do a lighting setup very quickly. That is one of the uh, primary things you need to know how to do as a DP. You want to be able to move fast because everyone, uh, everyone who uh, can fire you will be waiting on you at some point. (laughs) Well, yeah. And and I mean, like, you know, he's he's a a Corman alum. So at Corman, being able to do that kind of thing was, you know, part of the job. 
that's very true for Corman. You can't uh, you can't go fast enough there. But also, and and I think that most people in L.A. will understand this. Uh, I've lived in Los Angeles now for 21 years. This is the first time I've actually spoken to Carlos since I've been out here, even though, uh, you know, like, you know, we, we work together a bunch and he's a really cool guy. And I have no doubt uh, that you guys are close friends. We were, but I feel like that's the that's the curse of L.A. is like people who you're really good friends with. Uh, there's a good friend of mine who works very steadily in the business, lives about three miles from me. And I would say we are really good friends. And six I've, years ago, I've six seen years. him <laughs> 10 times since I moved to L.A. Yes, that that is uh, that's the thing about L.A. It is yeah. uh, it and it's really hard to explain that to people who uh, are not in the city. But we're you, spread you out get, here. You just get busy. You just get super busy. Anyway, what do we want to talk about as our George Foyt close focus segment tonight? Well, I think for close focus, it would be really good for us to actually uh, recap all the incredible work, or I should say maybe just like some of the incredible work, because we actually can't cover all of it, but so much of the stuff that is talked about on this show, and I'm talking about movies here, are now available as for free with part of subscriptions to certain streaming services. There's a couple of others that are available as actually like a pay-per-view sort of thing. And the list is way too long to go through all the stuff that our guests have uh, have worked on or shot or talked about. It's but a lot. It's a lot, but uh, there's a ton that's available right now, some that's just come out recently, and particularly if you've got Hulu, if you are a Hulu subscriber right now, you can watch a movie, listen to the interview on our podcast, and have double the enjoyment, Or and you can do it in either order. You could listen to the interview, then see the, the movie, you could watch the movie, then listen to the interview, but I think you can increase your uh, enjoyment of any of these things based on having these uh, wonderful experiences by hearing uh, the, the creators talk about it, like uh, Zombieland 2, now on Hulu. Oh, uh, sweet. Ruben, I yeah, didn't get a Ru- chance to see Zombieland 2 because baby, I'm blaming the baby. All, all I'm going to say for Zombieland 2 is you'll definitely want to listen to the uh, interview we did with Ruben Fleischer uh, a little while ago, which is great. And also watch the credits all the way to the very, very end. Do Will not do, do, do not uh, turn off early. Do not. Oh, in the middle of the credits or something else. Watch to the very end. Uh, beyond uh, Zombieland 2, of course, uh, a lot of people missed Hail Satan. I can't tell you how many people I talked to about Hail Satan, directed by Penny Lane, also on Hulu. Hail Satan is a fantastic documentary, and it must be seen to be believed, and you should absolutely watch it. Ben, have you seen Hail Satan? Uh, I saw Hail Satan, I believe, the day it dropped on Hulu. It was one of the one of the things I was most excited about. It's about the Satanic Temple which is run by a guy named Lucian Greaves, and it kind of deals with their travails, uh, basically uh, messing with religious extremist organizations that want representation in, in the public sphere. I, I just love everything they do. They're brilliant and subversive. And it's, it's a wonderful documentary and an introduction to the uh, to, to all the people involved. So definitely check out Hail Satan. For sure. And it's like, there's a little question mark on the end, Hail Satan. That's that's really what it is. And listen to the cool interview with Penny Lane. Uh, okay, also uh, Big Time Adolescence, which I know we just talked about recently. It was uh, directed by Jason Orley and DP uh, Andrew Hoopsher, available right now on Hulu. Hulu is just, you know, raking them in, which is great. Uh, Sweetheart, which I talked about before, and we also had in a little uh, a a little sort of special episode recently too, a little bonus episode. Uh, JD Dillard I spoke with. That's on Netflix. You can see that on Netflix right now. Totally worth seeing. Uh, coming up May first, Black Klansman, which uh, I spoke to Barry Alexander Brown. 
Black Klansman's coming uh, May 1st to HBO now. So if you are oh, an HBO subscriber and you didn't see Black Klansman, boom, time to see Black Klansman. Beautiful film. Uh, the Farewell has made it to Amazon Prime. If you're an Amazon Prime subscriber, there's no reason to miss The Farewell. Watch The Farewell and hear the awesome interview that uh, our producer Alana Cody did with Lulu Wong. And I know you have a list in front of you and I don't. But uh, everyone should just go to Amazon if you haven't already and watch any of the three seasons of The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel uh, shot by David Mullen. Yeah, I, I was trying to uh, I was trying to pick features for this, but there is so much TV that to, to throw throw in. As but well. I mean There's, that uh, and Marvelous uh, Mrs. Maisel is is it's, is, it's yeah. just it's so well done. And I mean, if we're opening up the floodgates to Netflix and, and Amazon. <laughs> well, if we're you, opening up to television, my God, there's so many, many you, more you guests that we have to talk overlook about. Mudbound, so. which was nominated for Best Cinematography okay. in our interview with Rachel Morrison. Well, of course, but now you're going back to features. I was trying to just do features, but but thanks, Ben. Okay, <laughs> I'm screwing your your stuff all up. Sorry, you had, you had an organizational system, uh, which was not articulated to me that I am violating. <laughs> I, I I well, I didn't I I didn't articulate it in any way. Okay, so uh, but here's basically what I was going through. I was going through Hulu, Netflix, uh, HBO Now, Amazon Prime, and. If you are uh, got a few bucks you want to throw to Amazon Pay Per View, you can also now watch Ford v Ferrari, Fade and Papa Michael. Gorgeous, Fanta- gorgeous movie. Yeah, and let me tell you, fun, so much fun, and you should watch it loud. It's a great, 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 great soundtrack score. All the audio in that is amazing. So, and the and I will tell you that they say that uh, to make a great picture, it helps if you have great sound. It's a hundred percent true. <laughs> but the, but the, but those images plus the sound, it's all fantastic. It's it's filmmaking at the highest level. Highly recommend Ford v Ferrari. If you missed it, if you thought, man, it's not for me. Uh, no, I, I I don't like that sort of thing. Trust me, you're not you. You don't know what you're talking about. You want to see it. It's hey, great. do a double feature with that and Rush, which was uh, shot by Anthony Dodd Mantle, who we have not yet had on the show, but still looks amazing. <laughs> Thank, thanks, Ben. Now, now you're bringing in people who were not on. We haven't interviewed, but you know. <laughs> One day, maybe you're, you're totally you're, th- you're throwing me off my game. Okay, Sorry. so in the, la- the last That's one, my job. Say, my job is to throw you off your game. <laughs> you, you've done you succeeded very well. Uh, <laughs> okay, and so the last thing I was going to say too is uh, the last full measure, Byron Werner. Uh, I, I still haven't seen that. So that is that's an Amazon pay-per-view right now. So that's what I'm going to be watching uh, in the next uh, couple of days. Excellent. No, that's awesome. Yeah. And Byron is uh, I think Byron gave some of the most amazing technical without being overly technical advice that I've gotten that we've gotten from anybody. A lot of it was just which apps he uses and how he uses them. Brilliant guy. Uh, agreed. Really, really good. All right. So, so Ben, uh, should we, should we take it away? Should we get to the yeah, end? Uh, yeah. I just want to get right into Carlos here. I want to, uh, I don't know how much we were able to clean up the interview and I have to apologize. There is a baby crying in the next room from me for a chunk of the interview. It goes away after about 10 minutes. I don't know if uh, Ben Katz uh, yet was able to get rid of that, um, but uh, I apologize. That's my son. He's two. Uh, you know, th- this is the reality we're living in. Uh, I, I can't follow that. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, but here is uh, Carlos Gonzalez. And, uh, and thanks again, Carlos, for doing this. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. All right, so I am here hunkered down in my COVID-19 bunker in Sherman Oaks speaking with Carlos Gonzalez. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Carlos. And long time no see. Yes, absolutely. Now, happy to be here. I know it's been a while since we've been trying to do this, but uh, took a pandemic to get it done, so that's good. 
it happens. You were mentioned, I believe, very favorably when we had Mike Mickens on, because I think the two of you worked uh, at Roger Corman together years and years ago. Yes, we did. And then he actually was my gaffer for a while, too. We go way, way back to the Corman days. <laughs> That's cool. And you and I actually go back to uh, literally the first professional movie I ever worked on, as and I was the assistant makeup artist, was a movie called Raw Justice for a director that I'm sure we'll talk about named David Pryor. Uh, you shot a few projects for David, and you know we'll want to get into that. And then even deeper beneath that, you and I both had the same film school teacher in Ralph Clemente back Way, way back. Well, you you had him a little bit before me because he was teaching at the University of Miami, if I'm not mistaken. That's right. And then I had him. He ran the the program at the Valencia Community College where I the first film program I ever went to. Anyway, so we kind of start everybody with kind of my baseline question, which is just to kind of it's designed to see where you're coming from. And a thought was put into my head a long time ago by a cinematographer that I'd worked with. Um, that some DPs, that DPs tend to fall in, into two categories. Some, when they read a script, they see it in compositions and some, they see it in lighting. Would you consider yourself one or the other? And also feel free to reject the basic premise of my question. For me, I want to say composition comes first, but a close second is the lighting. I think you, I would mm. probably place a mix. Um, I studied architecture and I, I have an architecture degree. People don't think there's a relationship between architecture and cinematography, but in fact, there's more than people think. Um, when you design a room and someone walks in, you put a wing in a certain place so that the light comes in at in the afternoon and the person gets a certain experience when they walk into the room. What do they see? Which is sort of what the camera is doing and the lighting is doing. And uh, interestingly enough, you're the second DP that we've had on uh, Checo Varese. Do you know Checo? Mm-hmm. He also started out in architecture. Yeah. <laughs> So tell me about like, you know, so you went in, you went to college to study architecture. Where did the interest in filmmaking come from? Well, what happened was that I took an elective in film Mm -hmm. and that's sort of, you know, where you make your sort of little Super 8 film. So that kind of got me hooked. And so I kept taking, as as I was studying architecture, I kept taking electives in film. And that's when I met Ralph Clemente at the film school, University of Miami. So you were Uh, studying architecture at the University of Miami. Correct. Correct. And then, you know, because my films were liked at the school, I got hired by one of Ralph's ex-students who was doing a movie as a production designer to sort of draw the set. So mm-hmm. that was my first movie experience. So uh, what, what, what brought you to the University of Miami? I mean, where are you from originally? I'm from uh, Venezuela. Mm-hmm. Did you go to a school in Venezuela first or did you, were you? In- I went from, from high school in Venezuela and then I did junior high school in Canada and then back high school in Venezuela and then to Miami for uh, mm-hmm. So I'd kind of like to hear a little bit more of, of your insight about this, about the crossover between architecture and filmmaking. Like what makes them similar? How could you use your architecture skills as a filmmaker? Well, you know, the thing is I, I get very involved in, uh, with the production designer. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, because I, I understand the language. And, and then that experience of discovery when you walk into a room, you know, where the light's coming from. In architecture, is, is basically the same, you know, where you mm. design a room as an experience of someone walks in and what does he feel when he walks into the room? And, you know, imagine you're doing a Steadicam shot and you're walking through a door into a room. Well, what do you feel when you're doing that? It's, you know, it's pretty much the same thing. Because of my architectural background, I, you know, I tend to say I'm not like a super techie DP. Like, yeah. to me, it's more about the, the story and painting and all that is in terms of, you know, how a camera works. You know, it's, I got assistance for that. You know what I mean? I'm, yeah. not, I'm <laughs> not that guy that is going to take it apart and put it back together and 
so I tend to be a more sort of creative as opposed to techie. So uh, tell me about like what it was like at Corman. Like when we had Mike Mickens on the show years ago, he was kind of talking about the insane vibe at Corman, you know, where it just sounded like not a factor. It just sounded sort of like it just forced you to be very resourceful. Can you tell me? Because it's like, I don't know that we have a thing like Corman today. We don't, you know, Corman was first, you know, I think if there was something like Corman today, we get shut down, you know. (laughs) I mean, it was, you know, it was like no safety, <laughs> you know. Uh, uh, all the equipment is old and dangerous and falling apart. But, you know, you were able to shoot movies on 35 millimeter and the dailies were projected on 35 millimeter. At least when I was there, it was a really great group to be working with. And it was a factory. I mean, literally, it was one movie a month. And, Crazy. Um, you know, like I did a movie that actually Janusz, um, that was a underground lab and you know everything in the outside world there were monsters that and roaming around so that's why they lived underground in this lab and then <laughs> you know, this monster would break in and start killing everybody and then when we finished that they painted a set of different color it was now a spaceship <laughs> same thing, with a different monster in space you know kind of like an alien oh, okay and, i mean I guess the asylum today is sort of like that a little bit in that I don't know what their current facility is, but like a friend of mine had made a bunch of movies for the asylum and they, they, they do, they had like a big warehouse in Burbank where they would just mass produce these movies. And, you know, these were the days where, you know, the union wasn't really interested in, in these lower budget, you know? Mm -hmm. So it was kind of like a, you know, a great atmosphere just to learn and make mistakes and, you know, where it didn't really matter that much, you know, the stakes weren't that high and you were just learning on the job. You know? I mean, yeah. Yeah. It was a film school in a way. And it led you, it eventually led you to work again with, with David, who you and I both worked with. Um, and you shot that I know of two I movies. Shot, I shot two movies. Yeah. Mutant species. Mutant species. It was called biohazard at first. That's right. It was biohazard yeah. one, BH one. I don't even no, know. Excuse me. Bioforce one. Sorry. Bioforce. Bioforce. That's yes. right. Yes. Was there a two? There was no Bioforce 2, but, you know, maybe, no maybe Bioforce. Bioforce 1. I think that that is like, uh, I think that that is David's uh, Citizen Kane. I think that was the biggest yeah. budget, broadest scope movie he was ever able to make. Yeah. So, you know, again, you know, that was another sort of, as you know, having worked with David, you know, he was a very generous guy. Yeah. Uh, um, very open, you know, uh, stuck to group of people and uh, was loyal. And, uh, and again, it was, you know, go make this movie in whatever three four weeks and and learn a lot of stuff you know i remember that he could get anything done in mobile alabama that he wanted done and i remember on raw justice especially i think it was on a friday uh he wanted to shoot a shootout in city hall in in downtown mobile alabama and they shut down the city hall for him to shoot the big shootout in the courthouse yeah and he went he ended up you know opening that studio there yeah uh, in Mobile, and uh, he definitely, uh, you know, he brought business to the town. And, uh, but that was interesting, you know, for me, it was also a bit of a cultural shock. <laughs> Mobile, Alabama, really? <laughs> uh, you know, not being from, from the U.S. and, and uh, not really fully understanding yet race relations and politics and all that. that sure. That is so different from California or even, or even South Florida because, you know, South Florida is, is not... Alabama, North Florida is Alabama, but not, you know, in <laughs> well, Florida, the like, north you go, the, the farther yeah. you are. 
Yeah, we were stones throw from Pensacola, but, uh, you know, yeah. it was, yeah, it was, I mean, it was even culture shock for me and I was coming from Orlando, Florida at the time. Yeah. I mean, I think that, I think that that was interesting. I also think like, it's hard to imagine a class of movies like the stuff David made. Cause he made like 30 something movies in his career and you don't have people like that anymore nowadays. Like he sort of came up at the beginning of the straight to video craze. So he was able to kind of get in the door there and then just make movie after movie after movie and literally made over 30 movies. And, uh, you know, Corman was obviously ahead of the pack with that. He'd been doing that kind of thing since the sixties, but there were really wasn't like a B movie scene in the eighties and nineties, but there were straight to video and that's kind of where David was. But it also gave, it gave everyone on, on the set great creative opportunities to do something as cinematically as possible, given, you know, the restrictions, but you know, we're shooting film and it was a sizable crew, right? Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that in terms of the the crew and what you had to work with, it was, you know, it was what you would have today in a lower budget movie is just material was, you know, straight to video B movie material. Yeah. Yeah. Not making, you know, (laughs) that, that barely exists now. Uh, There's still some people making that type of stuff, but that was, you know, I mean, I shot, I don't know how many millions of feet of 35 millimeter making these movies, you know, and that's, that's how I learned. So for me, it was fantastic. It wasn't about the content, you know, I had shot one movie and uh, I was like, I need to shoot more. And uh, this gave me an opportunity to, to shoot, you know, quite a bit. Are there, um, are there like specific lessons that you learned working on the straight to video kind of movies or the smaller budget movies or whatever in, in that time that carry over, uh, that carried over to you when you started doing bigger budget work? I think the speed, you know, I think even in the bigger budgets, they appreciate working fast, mm-hmm. which is something that you you learn on these lower budget movies. I, I think, and that was sort of my thing when I started out, you know, is once I made one film, my first feature is that, well, it's going to be hard getting the second feature. And then thankfully I got it, but it was like, why are they going to hire me? I don't have a big body of work. Yeah. Well, they're going to hire me because I'm fast. So my thing was like, I'm going to be as fast as I can. I'm going to be the fast guy, you know? <laughs> So that that's why, you know, they're going to hire me because I'm going to get it done, you know, yeah. and even to this day, I'm known as that guy where, you know, we have 10 minutes left and it's going to happen. I'm going to make it happen for you. Like, what's the what's the key to figuring out how to how, I mean, because like your work is gorgeous and beautiful. And, and even, you know, way back in the 90s on that stuff, like I, I actually was talking to somebody about Raw Justice recently and I went back and watched it. I'm like, considering what it is and how quickly it was made and the budget it was made on, it looks beautiful. And Mutant Species, I think, looks amazing. So you're not sacrificing, in my opinion, the quality. What do you think is it that you put into it? What What's the thought process to make something that is, and I know this is a, a huge question, we could probably spend five hours talking about just this, but like if you were to give someone advice about how to start thinking to work that quickly. What are the basic building blocks of that? Well, I think like one of the easiest ways of sort of achieving this good look fast is what I typically do is I walk into a place and and I basically, first don't use that many lights because you don't have, Mm -hmm. you know, especially nowadays, cameras are so fast that you can, you know, and if you, if there is some natural light that looks good, embrace it and, and, you know, and push the ID to say, look, if we shoot in the next half hour, Let's go. I'm ready. Let's do it now. You know, and, you know, I basically light the set and then, you know, you just light two points to where the actors go really nicely and then just let him go out and you come back in. You know, you don't have to have a backlight every time. I think, you know, a lot of time because those are very consuming if you're going to hang it and, and they start becoming kind of theatrical. So, you know, I always tell my gaffer is like, 
an earlier setup, you're using more than five, six lights to start turning them, start turning them off, you know, because you're just, you're just mudding things up. And then, you know, faces, you know, like when you get into that close-up, get to know your actors' faces right away mm-hmm. because that is what's going to shine in terms of your lighting many times. But, you know, in terms of going fast, I think is the clarity of direction that you can give to your crew also. You do a rehearsal, you talk with the director, and then it's like, okay. And now it becomes a drill, you know? Now it's like, give me this here, this here, that there, and let's go. And I mean, I guess that this comes with experience where you don't have to like, overthink too many things. You sort of, yeah, yeah. you know, know right away, like where to put three, four lights. And it's a trade of, you know, when you grow up in the third world, it's like you're born with that trade of everything is improvised. You don't have a lot. So you make things work with whatever you have. And, and that's sort of like the mentality. You know, I, I did a commercial for Nike. And so I had a, you know, a truck full of lights and I show up in this warehouse and I was like, wow, this looks amazing. So I just put Vaseline on the actor's body. It was like a basketball thing. And so he's, he's an African-American guy. So, and, he, and the, the building, it was a warehouse with skylights and all that reflected on his body. I didn't use one light for the whole thing. Oh, wow. <laughs> Even though I had, I had a full truck. And the producer was like, why'd you order all this? I'm not going to use it. Like, <laughs> I was about to say. <laughs> and, uh, it's like walking here and it looks, and then you know, when they saw it, they were like, wow, this looks great. You know, and it's like, yeah, I would have ruined it if I started lightning. <laughs> not to go too deep into the David Pryor well, but I remember like one of the shots, it's like the trailer shot from Mutant Species is the big goofy rubber monster guy. Yeah, um, goofy goofy uh, is the word, yes. Yeah, it wasn't wasn't the best monster design. Yeah. And I say that as someone from the makeup effects crew. Um, but uh, backlit with like, you know, crazy fog and everything like that. And as I recall, it was just a foggy day. I remember you guys setting up, or night, and I remember you right. guys setting up that shot and like everyone looking at it and being like, that is going to look like sexy as hell and and it was just like yeah it just happened to be foggy in alabama that night yeah. um i wanted to talk to you because you also shot a movie for another maybe way better known uh kind of b movie director and that was jim wynorski and yes. i believe you're the first cinematographer we've had who's ever worked with uh, jim wynorski and you know i mean he's probably best known for making movies like chopping mall and stuff like that in the in the 80s but also like there was a documentary about him where he was making these movies for cinemax and he would shoot them in like two days i'm just curious if if you have any, any thoughts about working with somebody sort he was sort of notorious when you worked with him yeah look jim was jim was a complicated guy mm-hmm. uh, and he was awkward uh, he was very smart, you know, he's a very, very smart guy. But yes, he, he for him, it was about wrapping in eight hours or six if he could. Really? So, yeah. So, you know, the craft was not about, he, he didn't really care too much about how it looked. You know, he, he just sort of wanted to get the shots he thought were, were important and then just go home and have a beer. That, that was sort of his MO, was just go in and shoot the five shots you need and go home. <laughs> really? Know? Yeah. Man, that's that's rough, and it, and it makes me wonder, like, what makes somebody like that want to make movies? Because movie making is all about kind of the detail oriented, you know, make, making stuff look exactly the way it's supposed to look. Yeah, no, he wasn't that guy, and and I don't know, you know, and like I said, he was he was uh, complicated. He, he was he was very hard to sort of get to know him, you mm-hmm. know. So I never got to you know crack his brain in a way. 
Hmm. So, um, so what was your move? Uh, you know, so so eventually you moved beyond working on these lower budget straight to video films, and you started doing a lot of the work you've done is television, but you also have done a, a number of features. Like, what was the moment where you were able to kind of cross over and get out of the smaller budget? Well, it's not even about the budget, but it's sort of the straight to video um, kind of stuff. Um, I don't think it was like a particular moment. You know, I, I've always sort of gone back and forth in genres and, and budgets, and I, and I sort of. I never wanted to get pigeonholed, so for me, it was important to, to keep my, my work to be varied in genres. You know? mm-hmm. I did a uh, PBS Masterpiece Theater in between one of these horror movies, you know, and those <laughs> are very kind of prestigious. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I was a period piece and all that, and so now I had something that, that had some prestige to it, and that sort of led to a bigger budget movie, also the relationship with Fred Williamson. You know, I did that, my first movie ever was with Fred, and then, but three years later, I did my first theatrical release. It was called uh, Original Gangsters. Yeah, which, yeah. Yeah, which is sort of the reunion of all the black exploitation heroes, you know? Yeah, yeah, that must have been cool. So that was a sort of another step for me. And that was just because I had done this little movie with Fred three years before. It's relationships really what sort of takes you to, to another level, I think. You know, you got to have the talent clearly, but if you don't meet that person, if you don't get that break, then you probably get stuck where you're, you know, in that world forever. Like what to you is like, uh, cause you've done a lot of features and you've done a lot of television. What are the main differences between uh, TV and, and features for you? One story, one director, one vision, mm-hmm. you know, that's a feature, which I prefer just because of that. You were sort of uh, really concentrating on telling a story that, you know, well, Yeah. you know, in television, you know, you, get the script for the next show and you don't know what it's about and you get it three days before you start shooting. <laughs> Could you talk to me a little bit about some of the larger TV stuff that you did? Like, uh, you know, Grey's Anatomy is huge. Like that's, you know, one of the most beloved shows that's been running forever and stuff like Party of Five. Like how did that stuff come about? And, and uh, you know, what was it like kind of painting on a canvas like that where you know it's your stuff is going to be seen by, you know, probably one of the biggest TV audiences out there? Honestly, it ends up being... Um pretty much, you have to think about it like pretty much like any other show mm-hmm. when you approach it. Uh, you know, I think what you navigate on the on the bigger shows is studios and very big personalities and, you know, sometimes the talent is yeah. also a producer on it. And I think that is, that becomes sort of the challenge more than the actual work. You know, the lighting is the lighting. I mean, a show like Grey's Anatomy, honestly, you know, it's a hospital. So in terms of lighting, it's not the most exciting yeah, but it's you know it's about making Ellen Pompeo look great all the time. Yeah, yeah. So you got to navigate that world, and then of course there is the, the showrunner and then there's the director, the producer. Sometimes you know there could be different opinions about things, so you, you sort of have to navigate that. The work is the work. I mean, I think yeah. it's more about the experience of navigating these big personalities and and studios and and, and you know I mean there are things like there was this on Grey's Anatomy. They wrote a scene at the last minute where there's a doctor and a child on a helipad on top of the hospital overlooking Seattle. And, you know, of course, we're shooting in Los Feliz. So we basically shot the whole thing on green screen. Uh-huh. Um, they built the helicopter. They built CGI. They built the only thing that was an elevator shaft was the only real thing on the set. Wow. Yeah. Everything else was green. Green apple boxes. They sat there. They were sitting on the open door of the helicopter. I was wondering, uh, in stuff like that, do they consult you when they're adding the stuff in to 
to light it properly in the CG world or do they just go do their thing? No, they, they, they're, they, you know, usually you have a supervisor uh-huh. on, on set. But do they like show you comps and, and like you're like if you were to say, oh, the the lighting source is a little weird for the helicopter. Can you shift blah, blah, blah. Would they listen to you or do you just do it and then they go do their thing? Yeah. And this was so fast that there was no basically what you do in, on something like that is you, you you sort of do a very kind of soft generic light uh-huh. that could be coming from anywhere you know? <laughs> because you don't want to start creating things that then are not going to match. Got that it. they can't do in, you know, in VFX. When you're shooting a TV series, and this is something I'm always interested in, so if you're shooting a TV series and you're a regular DP on that series and a director comes in and they're a guest director, you have a better idea of generally how that show is lensed, how that show is lit, what it looks like, all that stuff. Correct. Do you ever find that you're, part of your job in that situation is sort of to be like quality control for guest directors to make sure that no matter what that director does, it still looks like the show? Totally, and, and it's expected of and it's expected of you to keep the show in line, which is, you know, that part I enjoy. And But yeah, but absolutely. I mean, that is that is how it works. So when did uh, directing first become something you were interested in pursuing? Well, you know, even when I was in film school, I started out directing. And then somebody asked me to shoot their film and, and look good. And everybody wanted me to shoot their films. And then I ended up sort of going to cinematography. So you've kind of pursued both still, like you're still shooting and directing. Yeah, I just I just finished directing a movie uh, six weeks ago. Oh, really? Yeah. Right right before the the, the mass quarantine. Yeah, in, in Orlando. In Orlando, Florida? In Orlando, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, Oh, my God, I bet I know a bunch of people who worked on it with you. <laughs> yeah, and so I'm in the middle of post now with just uh, visual effects and the, the score and all that. But um, I, I was in the art department on a movie that was shot in Orlando in like 1998, 97 or 98. And it was in the summer and almost the whole thing was shot outside. And I counted that we had lost like two days just to packing stuff up for rain. Like the whole thing was outside. We trashed this poor farm in Christmas, Florida, trashed it, just crew parking and stuff. And, uh, and every day at like three o'clock, you have to, you know, bring in all the lights. It was, and it was just murdered you for time. Not, not trying to trash my, my uh, hometown, but, uh, it, it was, we got lucky. Yeah, we got lucky. I, I mean, it was the right time to go, for sure. It was January, February. Yeah, yeah, it's the least uh, rainy time. And it was staged, so it was completely furnished. Oh, sweet. Uh, so we just had to bring, you know, a few things. So that became our, our cover set. So there were a couple of times where we had to. Cover sets, like when I worked in the Southeast, was like you always had to have a cover set. It was often on the call sheet. And once I moved to L.A., it's like nobody ever thinks about cover sets. And one day I was on a shoot at Vasquez Rocks and it started raining and nobody knew what the hell to do. They just had to wait out the rain and try and get the coverage when it stopped. Yeah, no, no such such problems here. Anyway, before we wrap it up, is there any place that people can see your work online if they wanted to see it or interact with you if you're on any of the social medias? I have a, a website. You can go to the website and I uh, Instagram. You can find me on Instagram. Mm. What's the website? Gonzalez-SVC.com. Excellent. Well, thank you very much again for doing this. It's great to see you even over a computer screen for the first time in uh, over 20 years. What? I know. <laughs> it's been crazy. a minute. <laughs> um, th- thanks again for doing this. And uh, yeah, hopefully we'll get some people to check out your website. And uh, I really appreciate it. It's a pleasure. Thanks so much. All right. Fantastic interview, Ben. Great job. Oh, thank you. Thank you. It was such a great pleasure to uh, get to talk to Carlos. And again, I, I hope Ben was able to uh, minimize the sound of crying baby. But, uh, you know, that's, 
that's just what happens. Yeah, you know, our, li- um, our listeners have probably heard the sound of a crying baby before. They weren't confused. Carlos, like, I don't think, really heard it too badly. Oh, oh good. But anyway, before we do anything else, what time is it, Ilya? Oh, my God. It's like two in the morning. No, no. It is time to pay the bills. Sweet. And it's only 1.54 a.m. No, I'm kidding. It, but it feels like it to me right now. It does. It feels like because I need sleep. Uh, we have to thank our sponsor, Aperture. Aperture, who is just doing great stuff right now. They have officially uh, released the LS300X light. And so mm-hmm. the LS300X is the follow-up to their very successful 300D series. And the 300X gives you everything that you want from the D, except it gives you bicolor. It gives you two different shades of white. It gives you a warm white, gives you a cool white, also known as tungsten and daylight. And they do some rather clever stuff with the way they do it. And they don't charge you anything extra. It's not quite as bright as the D. And for some people mm-hmm. who just want pure power, Absolutely, the D is going to be the way to go for that, but it's only daylight colored. So this new light is going to give you uh, the ability to easily change and essentially network your lights with an app if you so desire. So you can sit there and play with your phone and adjust the color and brightness of your lights and all kinds of other cool stuff. Sweet. And uh, how much does this run? Uh, This runs about $1,100. So $1,100 for a professional light that's uh, being used in cinema and television applications. You know, it's getting drafted into all different types of production. One thing that's really cool about Aperture is you will see independents and YouTubers and all kinds of people working with that system. And then you'll also see big professionals uh, working with it as well. There's, you know, it's very popular and it's very diverse user base. And uh, do you have those in stock? They are shipping now, and by the time that you hear this, you will be able to order it from Hot Rod Cameras and have it arrive. I think we might still have it listed as a pre-order, but maybe not. But uh, regardless, they're, they're, by the time you hear this, they should be shipping out. Hot Rod Kick ca- ass. Yeah, Hot Rod Cameras will happen. And now, short ends. Okay, so uh, Ben, what's uh, what's your short end this week? I know you. I know you've mentioned it. Yeah. Well, as I kind of talked about before, uh, I, I don't usually uh, like to mention my short end before, but I was really excited about this. You gave it away. Um, there's a documentary about the Beastie Boys on uh, Apple TV, and I didn't have Apple TV. There, you can do a seven day free trial, which is what I did. Um, I don't know if I'm going to stick with it or not. I might kind of goof around and see what kind of stuff is in it. It's not that expensive. But Spike Jones, who obviously made huge movies like Being John Malkovich and Her and Adaptation, you know, an amazing filmmaker, but he kind of cut his teeth and started as a music video director. And he had directed, among other things, the Beastie Boys music video for Sabotage, which is just a legendary music video and amazing and if you haven't seen it you should see it it's great it's it's funny it's witty it's everything i love about the beastie boys and i mean i guess the question is if you're not a beastie boys fan would you enjoy this documentary my answer is probably so in 2012 adam yow also known as mca one of the three beastie boys passed away from a form of salivary gland cancer i believe and the other you know that ended beastie boys because it was three people So the two remaining people, Michael Diamond and Adam Horowitz, uh, did a live show where they kind of showed archival footage and kind of told the whole Beastie Boys story. And it, it coincided with a book that they released about a year ago. And then they brought Spike Jones in to basically direct it as a stage show and then make it sort of a, a weird hybrid live stage show documentary integrated experience and it's extremely entertaining and I feel like these two guys come across as unbelievably endearing and humble and funny 
and I, I couldn't take my eyes off the screen the whole time. I, I thought it was just brilliant and in a lot of ways a love letter to Adam Yout, you know, who sort of held the band together and uh, had some amazing archival footage and amazing behind the scenes stories, but also just kind of an inspirational story about three guys who kind of had a plan and then they kind of let the plan change and they managed to, to get both very lucky and also develop amazing skills at what they did over the years and uh i every, everything about it I, I just thought was brilliant it sounds really great i i think that i'm going to be all over that so thank you for the recommendation that's going to be in my uh that's all that's going to be coming up in the next in the next week or two yeah. hell yeah no totally totally worth it and you know again like for me the jury's still out on whether or not i'm going to stick with apple tv as a subscription tv service i'll watch some of their stuff and see because i have a week right now but, uh, you know, it, it, this documentary just dropped a couple days ago on the 24th of April. And um, I actually think, again, even if you're not really a Beastie Boys, if, if you're a kind of a casual person who is aware of the Beastie Boys and you like some of their songs, I think you'll love it. Um, if you've never heard of them, you probably would still like it because of the way they tell the story. Nice. Well, my short end this week is also a documentary. It is called Never Surrender, a Galaxy oh, Quest documentary. Oh, good. I'm glad you saw it. Uh, so, so then, you know, it opens with a quote from David Mamet. Uh, and I think that the quote really kind of sets the stage for for everything you're about to see, which essentially is um, something to the effect of there's only four perfect films, The Godfather, A Place in the Sun, Dodsworth and Galaxy Quest. And... <laughs> And, you know, Galaxy Quest is pretty remarkable, and they did a really good job of assembling many of the key creatives and key technical people who made that movie what it is. And it's definitely helpful if you have a background or experience enjoying sort of the Star Trek universe. If you ever watched the original Star Trek or any of the Star Trek movies, you're in that place. And they do an incredible job of explaining what the goals sort of were as they were going through it. The history of like how the movie came to be. Harold Ramis was attached to direct the movie for a, for a number of years. And for whatever reasons, uh, ended up leaving the project. And then after seeing the movie said that it was the biggest mistake of his life, not taking that project. So, you know, there's a lot of really interesting backstory. There's a lot of interesting uh, bits and twists and turns about how that movie actually gets got made. And, the amount of love it seems that the crew and the creatives behind it all sort of share and the cast it's like uh you know everyone kind of dreams of having that perfect project or doing that job that doesn't feel like a job that really is a joy every single moment and at least for the people in this documentary it looks like this was it and there was no one there who had a a negative thing to say about it they all looked like they were just having the time of their lives every single day it looks great. And the thing about Galaxy Quest is I feel like it's one of those movies that just kind of came and I saw it in the theater and I just remember loving it, loving it. And I think a lot of people consider it one of the best non-Star Trek, Star Trek movies. In fact, like the joke, they have Will Wheaton saying it's the best Star Trek movie ever made and it's not Star Trek, but it's such a it's such a love letter to Star Trek. And you, you see how all the choices got made that lined it up into what it became. And it's an interesting uh, kind of a masterclass in how decision making in Hollywood kind of comes together. And, you know, movies get made and decisions get made. And, and you see this movie. And, you know, to me, it, the biggest crime is that they never made a sequel or a follow up or anything like that. But on the flip side, I'm actually kind of glad that they didn't because the 
Galaxy Quest is such a perfect capsule in and of itself that I almost don't want there to be any more Galaxy Quest than what there was. It, it's anything else could have screwed it up. And, and it's just so well made, so perfectly cast, so perfectly directed, uh, looks exactly like what it's supposed to look like. And, you know, they keep bringing up in the documentary that it's the first kind of Star Trek thing that acknowledged the fans within the universe and made a big deal about how important the fans were. And I think that that's part of what makes it such a special film. I don't think I could do justice by going through the details uh, or any of even of the stories that are take place in the documentary because the documentary stands very well on its on its own and uh, there are all kinds of wonderful moments and insights and things that you get that I don't want to give any spoilers I, I don't want to give any spoilers to a documentary about a movie you've probably seen like like you I saw it in the theater I, I was blown away I thought it was it was really really funny really entertaining and you know uh, people did not exactly think of Tim Allen as leading man at that time I mean, it was his first like real sort of like big leading man role that wasn't, uh, you know, an anime. Well, well he's basically playing William Shatner. He is. Like he's playing a fictionalized <laughs> version of William Shatner. So he has to simultaneously come off like a bravado filled leading man kind of a guy. And also somebody who's a little, yeah, I, I hesitate to say dorky, but like past his prime, you know, yeah. and fighting the fact that he's past his prime. Uh, so it's sort of like when Shatner was making The Wrath of Khan kind of era and and it's funny because they talk about the other actors who could have played that part and several of them I was like oh yeah that, that, that person would have been pretty good but like nobody could have nailed all of those aspects the same way that Tim Allen did and I'm not like a raving Tim Allen fan I just think he's perfectly cast in that movie uh, I agree I think Tim Allen that that's uh, in some ways possibly his role of a lifetime it's such a it's such a great yeah. fit I actually went to go see that movie because Alan Rickman is in it and at that time uh, I, I will say that Alan Rickman could be in anything. He could be anywhere and I would go see him. I, I, I absolutely love Alan Rickman and everything. And uh, I will tell you that he hadn't done Harry Potter at that point. People who do not associate him with doing anything other than the important roles or the, the you know, and the juxtaposition of him and basically what seems like the entire rest of the cast is so fantastic. And Sam Rockwell is in that and Justin Long and a bunch of other people, too. But uh, Alan, Tony Shalhoub. Yeah, uh, Tony Shalhoub. Sigourney Weaver. Uh, I, 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 mean, I would say that Alan Rickman. Rain Wilson. No. Nobody even knew who the hell Rain Wilson was Rain back Wilson. then. Rain Wilson was probably like his, one of his first big parts in our first yeah. big project. So, but uh, Alan Rickman just to be in it, he knew exactly what the tone was. He knew exactly where his part was, and he just plays it to a T. He steals in some ways. I feel like you know every t every time he's got a line, he steals that moment. So it's, it's great. Well, cool. Uh, yeah, everybody should definitely, you know, it's two, two great documentaries. Check them out. Never Surrender is on Amazon Prime. And if you want to uh, wade into Apple TV's uh, offerings, check out Beastie Boys Story. I, I think that uh, both of them are outrageously entertaining and great viewing. Uh, pandemic or none. <laughs> yeah, well, we almost made it through without mentioning pandemic, but 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 there it is. Well, we, yes, we didn't talk about the pandemic. That's that's enough. We can talk about talking about the pandemic without talking about the pandemic. I, I, I think that I think I think that we did it. All right, Ben. All right. Where can people find you? Uh, go to benrockonline.com. You will find all of my social media contacts and all that stuff. And you can reach out to me on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, you name it. Uh, and you can find me over at uh, Hot Rod Cameras, uh, Ilya at Hot Rod Cameras. Uh, that is uh, if you want to email me, boom, I just gave you my email address. All right. Email Ilya and demand a T-shirt. If you're listening to the show and you demand a T-shirt and you can make it to my store, 
Th- there might be one for you. <laughs> don't don't go out in public. But anyway, you, you don't um, have to. We'll do curbside T-shirts. So, <laughs> so Ilya, who do we need to thank today? Let's thank uh, Alana Cody, our producer extraordinaire. Alana Cody, who has been working double time to get us some outrageously exciting interviews, some of which we haven't recorded yet, so I don't want to say who they are, lest I jinx us. No, don't. But they're very excited. No, I'm, I'm very excited, too. And uh, we got to thank uh, Kay's Alatrachi. Hey, when, when are we interviewing Kay's? Uh, I haven't set a date with Kay's, but I'll uh, I'll talk to him this week. Maybe I can do it this week. I have, I, I've got a busy week, but we'll see what we can do. I love it. Okay. Uh, let's thank, of course, our editor, Ben Katz, who I don't think we gave a very easy job to this time. Thank you, Ben. Not as easy as other days. Sorry, Ben. No, we're... we're, sorry, we're sorry, sorry what we did to you today. We're trying to make it better. We really are. <laughs> we, we're doing our best. Uh, all right. Well, then, uh, until next time, uh, we'll, 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 you'll hear from us in a week. <laughs> We need a better catchphrase. We do. We need, we a, need a catchphrase. Which which our catchphrase? No surrender. <laughs> never. <laughs> never surrender. Yeah. Never give up. Anyway. Never surrender. Yeah. We we, we need that. Uh, maybe we should put it out there. What our our catchphrase should be. So. Excelsior. Excel- See you next week. <laughs> this has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening.